Okay, today my guest is Professor Peter Williamson. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Peter as a person, Professor Williamson as a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Williamson is an AIB fellow and a fellow and director of studies at Cambridge. Uh, Peter's research and teaching interests have focused on the impact of globalization of knowledge on multinational enterprise, the nature and implications of the rise of emerging market multinationals, strategies and competitive advantages of Chinese companies, cross-border M&A, and business ecosystem innovation. Uh, Peter received the Sloan PricewaterhouseCooper Award to honor his contributions to enhancement of management practice. Much of his work is derived from uh, deep engagement with companies and has been referenced in The Economist, The Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. Peter has served over 20 years as a non-executive director or chairman of companies in renewable energy, textiles, hedge funds, whiskey, and software in Europe, USA, and China. Thank you, Peter, for joining us. Thank you. Delighted to be with you, Erdas. Uh, Peter, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, actually, I wanted to become a farmer. I think it's because I enjoyed the salt sights and sounds and smells of nature and the space. So I guess that proves you can be an international business scholar, even if that's not what you want to be when you're a child. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Uh, well, a mixture of uh, places, so partly in London, uh, partly in Hong Kong, and partly in Australia. So uh, we moved around a bit. Interesting. And uh, how did you choose academia? Well, I didn't go straight into academia. After my first degree in economics, I went into banking. And... Uh, I was interested in the economics part of banking, so I ended up joining the economics department, and then I worked for Merrill Lynch on, on strategy. But I had a professor from America in my last year of my undergraduate, and he said, why don't you apply for a PhD? And I applied for a PhD in various places, and I got into some schools, um, but I wasn't really ready to go. And so the next year I only applied to better schools. And to my surprise, I got into the business economics program, PhD at Harvard, and I decided I'd better go. And uh, interestingly, after doing that, which was a joint program between the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences Economics Department and the business school at Harvard, uh, I decided to join Boston Consulting Group, and my professors were horrified. Uh, I'd already written some articles out of my thesis, and in fact, I went on to write a book on financial markets with Professor Hendrik Hartacker, who I'd been his teaching assistant. But I really felt I wanted to get some more real-world experience, and to be perfectly frank with you, I thought I needed to earn some money after uh, years of studying my PhD. So I only came back to academia after five years in consulting. Um, 
So it, it, it was a bit of a, a zigzag path to get there. And I, I'm not sure I always wanted to go into academia, but I really enjoyed the, the freedom and stimulation that comes with, with being an academic. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting? Well, uh, when I was at primary school, one day a week, uh, we had a kind of pop-up bank where pupils could deposit their savings and they recorded them in a passbook and a ledger. And uh, I was about 10 and a friend and I, we ran that bank. So <laughs> I must have always been interested in commercial things. So, uh, so that's the, that's what's not on my CV. I started out as a banker at ten. <laughs> that's that's actually quite funny. Um, if you stopped, actually, I, I want to ask you: if you didn't become a professor, if you didn't become a researcher, and you would you continue with the banking? Would you continue with the finance sector? No, I don't think so. I, I think I, if I hadn't become a professor, I probably would have tried to become a barrister, uh, probably working on international law. And, you know, I think there's some similarities because, you know, to be a good teacher as a professor, you need to want to sell your ideas to people. And, and in fact, to be a good writer, you need to want to sell your ideas to people. So I think that's quite close to being a barrister, but I'm sure I would have made a terrible barrister because I like the big picture and I don't have a lot of attention to detail and patience for detail. And I think to be a good lawyer, you need to, uh, to really like detail. So, being a, an international business professor and strategy professor, I, I probably could deal with the details a little bit more nonchalantly. Jigret, <laughs> uh, uh, what is one thing you wish you would have done or done differently? Well, I, 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 as I mentioned, I worked in various things in banking and consulting and academia. But I never worked for an international organization like the World Bank or, or, or the IMF. And I think working for such an institution would have given an interesting, different perspective on international business from perhaps the one I got working with companies. Um, you know, as you said, I've been a director of companies and worked a lot with companies, but I, I, I think working with an international organization would have given a different perspective, and I never did that for various reasons. So <laughs> that probably something I could have done. But it would also be half the salary of a Boston Consulting Group. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that might have been one of the reasons. <laughs> um, what's your biggest failure, and what did you learn from it? Uh, that's a very good question. Well, you know, early in my career, uh, about three years after I'd gone back to academia at London Business School, the, the dean persuaded me to become associate dean for the MBA program with a brief to totally renew the curriculum. And, you know, I approached this like a good strategy person and did a lot of analysis and 
when I came to implement it, I found a huge amount of resistance and I thought it was a great plan, but it turned out I'd neglected to get buy-in from people. And I guess the lesson I learned from that is that if you want to make something happen, you have to get buy-in from people and you have to build consensus. And I think probably the same is true when you're selling your ideas. You, you, you have to engage with people and where they're coming from, uh, you know, not just think where you're coming from. So I think that's the, the important lesson I, I learned. You know, as a young person, I was probably overly focused on the analytics and getting the answer and, and under-focused on actually engaging with people and, and getting buy-in to make things happen. Interesting. And this happened when you were in uh, Mimit careers? Is this uh, early on uh, in your Yes, career? fairly early on. So I think I'd only been in academia for three or four years. So it probably wasn't really a good time to take on this associate dean position because it took up a lot of my time and I think my publishing probably suffered. Uh, but uh, it seemed like an opportunity and I thought MBA programs were getting a bit stale and, and the curricula needed to be revitalized and and so on. But, but actually, I wasn't senior enough, really, to know how to be a good leader and manager in a, in a business group. Uh, what are you most passionate about? Um, I, 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 think, I think I'm most passionate about influencing people. I, I think... Um, You know, a lot of work that academics do, we enjoy the, the uh, intellectual side, we enjoy talking to other academics and so on. But I think that probably because of my background with one foot in business and one foot in academia in my career, I'm very passionate about uh, influence. Sometimes people ask me, you know, what should be the goal of business schools? And I say influence, uh, either influence through policy or influence through students who go on to become leaders in different businesses or so on. But, but I think uh, I'm quite passionate about what we are doing, actually having an impact on the world and, and influencing the real world. So Peter, how do you explain your research and the importance of your research to people who don't read academic uh, outlets uh, or who are not in academic mindset? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. And I, I sometimes, well, fairly often, again, because I work outside academia as well as inside, I, I do have to do that. And... Uh, I suppose what I tell people is I help companies work out how to expand overseas and be successful abroad, both by teaching executives and as a company director and uh, a consultant. And, and I guess that, that goes back to this influence thing. I, I think multinationals can be a force for good in the world if they're properly run and they have the right objectives. And uh, I, I, I think 
you know, developing that and uh, bringing new ideas and skills from around the world to different places is a positive thing. And, and so uh, uh, that's, that's what I explain to people I try to do. Do, I mean, you, you said uh, multinational corporations do good or can be perceived as doing good. About the uh, recent emphasis or increased uh, pursuit in nationalism, uh, increased uh, tendencies for isolationist policies, uh, populism. Uh, what is the what is the next five to ten years of the field going to be? looking at these type of ideologies gaining power? I, I must say I really worry about these trends because, again, I believe that interaction between people around the world is a positive thing and can have positive outcomes. Uh, so, you know, this kind of uh, retreat to protectionism and inward looking, I, I think is a bad thing. Um, but I think in terms of what that means for the field, I think we have to look again at what globalization can look like, what, what globalization really means, and what will be the next phase of globalization as we, as we move forward. And um, how it will be changed by this kind of pushback that uh, has happened. So, so I think a lot of IB scholars, including myself, uh, more or less assumed that globalization was good and everybody would understand that. Um, of course, we knew there were some losers from uh, globalization and part of government policy is to try to compensate those people who are losing or or, or help them move into to different activities. But I, I, think, I think because of that, we underestimated the uh, impacts of globalization on the way people were feeling, what they were worried about, the uncertainties they faced. And, and therefore, I think the field needs to think about how do we make the next phase of globalization perhaps work better for a broader range of people? How do we think more about um, compensating or, or um, avoiding some of the negative impacts of, of globalization? And, and I think there are real questions about what will the next phase of globalization look like? I mean, the data show that if you look at globalization in terms of trade or even in foreign investment, the integration of the world is more or less stalled. But what hasn't stalled is the flow of information and knowledge around the world. That's, that's even increasing, perhaps even exponentially. So I think globalization the future is, is going to be about different things and, and it's going to be about the effects of globalization of information and knowledge and we need to think through what that means for the international business uh, field. In an interview uh, with Eleanor Resney, uh, 
she was talking about how the information flows um, are different because the, the MNE was established, uh, first of all, as a local entity. And then the assumption was that the local managers would gather and operate locally, but uh, information flows would be more, more local, adaptive, etc. But the, the information uh, flows actually work the other way around and information was gathered for headquarters and the, the entire reason of the foreign location was to gather information to the headquarters. And it is, it is a different perspective. So, um, I mean, there's something to be said about the future of globalization. I mean, you're an expert in this area, but um, I'm really skeptical. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think it's, it's a very interesting, in another sense, which what you just said about your previous interview, made me think about this. You know, um, globalization has created a sort of sameness and um, flow of information from headquarters around the world. But at the same time, I think globalization is making local differences even more important. And, and in fact, they're even more important for competitive advantage because as everybody has the same global knowledge that's flowing around the world, actually the difference becomes in the knowledge that can't flow around the world, <laughs> that is locally embedded. And therefore maybe competitive advantage is going to be more about what you can do with that local knowledge and local differences than uh the global one the, the global one the global knowledge might just become a table stake uh, i i think you see this in the digital industries i've been doing some research on this recently as as to why some digital industries become global and some digital industries the global players fail and you know a lot of these digital industries like ride uh, hailing or or food delivery they require an enormous amount of integration with the local institutions and customers and suppliers. And, and that's a very local problem. And, and actually, the, the capabilities on the digital side, everyone has them. You know, the people in, in China have them just as well or better as the people in the US or, you know, Indonesia or wherever. So, so actually, competition is becoming in some of those industries more about how successful you are at managing local integration. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, Peter, do you write every day? Sorry? Do, do you write every day? Do I write every day? No, I, I, I don't write every day. Um, <laughs> I, I've actually written 10 books in my career. And when it comes to books, I find if I, if I don't work for a week at a time, I can't make any progress because you sort of have to get into the, the story of the book. Um, it, and, and you can't write every, all day, every day over that week. You can probably only do about half a day at a time. Then you need a rest and to think and so. Mm. When it comes to articles, I, I can do them a bit more piecemeal, you know, a bit each day. But 
I still need blocks of time to work on them. I, I, I think this is one of the problems with modern life is that, you know, emails distract us and, and, uh, and texts distract us a lot. And I think, you know, you to really write something important, you, you need to have time both to reflect and to uh, really get into it when you're, when you're writing it. I want to ask about uh, creativity in writing, creativity in coming up with these great ideas, and even the topics for a book, uh, because it's, it's quite different than writing a paper. A paper is 30, 40 pages, a book is, I don't know how many hundred, uh, and one idea, it is consistent throughout the book, which is quite difficult to do, actually, if you're trained in writing articles. So how does your mind think uh, and what does your mind think of when it's thinking in terms of state of idle curiosity? <laughs> idle curiosity. <laughs> I, I, I think idle curiosity is often I'm thinking about how does our idea of internationalization change? How, how is it changing? How, how are people thinking about the relationship between the international world in this era of, of globalization? How, how are people thinking and feeling about that? Is it, is it making them nervous and uncertain that they're not anchored to anything or that they feel that forces beyond their control are uh, influencing? Well, when it comes to creativity, I, I think mostly I have um, found creativity by reframing things by asking a different question. Sometimes I've come up with that different question, you know, by being out in the real world with companies and organizations and so on. But um, I, 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 think, I think in some ways the questions are harder than the answers. And creativity is often about coming up with a new question. Um, and, and certainly when I go to write a book, the books have arisen because I found a new question about, about something, you know. Um, my, my most recent book was with Arnold de Mer was on uh, business ecosystems and how do you lead a business ecosystem around your, your company. And, and I got into that because I kept coming up against the question in the corporate world, how do you deal with disruption and uncertainty? And uh, what I noticed is that what companies needed was a broader range of capabilities that they didn't have inside their company and an ability to discover how to create a new value proposition by working with other people. And that, that, that needed to be flexible. So when they started out, they probably had an idea in their mind where this new value is, but not actually how to achieve it. And only by working with other partners uh, did they actually start to converge on the answer to that, that question. So. Um, I think I think questions are very very important. I think 
we are trained to spend a lot of time and tools and techniques on answers. But I think actually um, you achieve more if you ask a new and different and relevant question. About the progression in the field from where we were and where we're headed to, uh, you, you've seen a lot of trends, a lot of uh, shifts and some sort of an evolution of the field. Um, what can you say about uh, the new way of doing IB, IB research? Yes, I, I, I think the culture of IB has changed over the years that I've known it. It's now sort of nearly 40 years, I suppose. So, uh, I, I think there's much more of a culture of rigor than there used to be. Um, you know, I think in the early days we were kind of describing things and, and coming to some conclusions not in a very rigorous way. And, and I think that has good sides. I think it's uh, helped us um, better with logic and, and also the development of a solid base of knowledge that, that you know, we can build on in the future. Um, but I, I think the danger of that, what I see as the danger of that in the culture is that it's caused people to move away from some of the messy real world problems because they're not really so easily subject to this more rigorous um, systematic approach. And that means we end up kind of talking to ourselves. And <laughs> there are some really important problems out there that are really messy. And I think, uh, you know, we need to try to tackle them. But because they don't fit, a, you know, easily fit with a, a kind of the models we're using or a rigorous approach, sometimes we might shy away from them. And uh, I, I think that's a, that's a pity. I mean, you're talking about relevance of research, right? How relevant is our research to practitioners and all these companies that you're uh, consulting with or you know, talking to, well, what's keeping them awake at night? And how relevant is our research uh, Okay. Yes. Well, I'm afraid to say I don't believe it's relevant enough. <laughs> what's, uh, what, what's, what's keeping them awake at night? Well, a couple of things. The first thing is, what is the advantage of being an international or a multinational in this global knowledge world <laughs> where where information and knowledge is is flowing around so you know um the 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 theory of why it was good to be a multinational you know is largely based on the idea that multinationals could move certain things around that markets and other mechanisms were not very good at and I think that's being challenged because the markets for all sorts of things have got a lot more efficient globally and information and even knowledge is moving around much more. So a lot of companies are asking themselves, you know, how can I get advantage out of being a multinational? And um, I've been thinking for a long time, and this was part of the argument in the 
the um, meta-national book that I read with Eve Doe's and Joe Santos, uh, is that we have neglected the potential advantage of being a multinational in terms of that you can learn from lots of different places. We, we focused a lot on the ability or the advantage of being multinational in being able to take what it learned at home and replicate it or move it around the world. But I don't think we've put enough emphasis on the fact that because multinationals are over the world in different environments, they've got amazing learning opportunities. And most of them, at least in my experience, use the learning fairly much locally and they're not using it in a way that really uh, takes advantage of their potential as a multinational. So, so that's one thing that is, I find companies worrying a lot about, you know, has the advantage of being a multinational, is it declining, is it decaying? Uh, you know, what does the advantage of being a multinational look like with the internet and this sort of uh, globally connected world that we're in? Uh, another big thing I, I think they're worried about is back to these messy problems. So, you know, um, how do I become a sustainable company, a, a, a company that is able to deal with something like climate change and so forth. And I think they, their first reaction is, okay, let's set up a supply chain to you know, become more sustainable. And I think they realize actually, we don't know how to do this or even what it looks like. Um, so we don't know who should be our suppliers and partners and whatnot. So <laughs> so we, we've got to think much more broadly about, um, you know, how, how do I bring together a, an ecosystem of different capabilities and knowledge to help me work out, you know, what a viable sustainability in my company really looks like. And that I probably or certainly can't do this by myself because it depends on what other people are doing, not only what I'm doing. So um, that, that's the second area I think people are, are thinking a lot about at the moment. About uh, advice portion, about mentoring, uh, who was the most influential person on your uh, upbringing uh, in academic sense? Uh, who, who had the most influence on your intellectual development? Um, I, 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 I think the late Professor Richard Caves and Michael Porter, I mean, both of them were my thesis advisors. Um, and I think they had the, the biggest influence because they, they helped me see how I could apply my knowledge of the discipline of economics to business problems. Uh, you know, and that, that, uh, that had a big, big effect on me, I think. Um, you know, obviously, you know, some of the important um, IB scholars like John Dunning and so on had a, had a big effect also on how you bring some of these things into the international business context. But I, I think um, 
you know, a lot of a lot of IB relies on underlying disciplines of various types, whether they that be sort of sociology or psychology or economics. Um, and therefore, I, I, I think, you know, the people that have influenced me have helped me see how I could apply different disciplines to, uh, to the IB field. And of course, you know, because I'm trained as an economist, I tend to apply economics to, to it. But other people have shown, you know, how to apply sociology or psychology or, or, or different things like this to, uh, or mathematics to, to uh, the IB issues. But currently the training in IB uh, scholarship is much focused, much focused in very specific research questions even. So the, the, the doctoral student knows his paper and he can know those 40 pages, 40 papers, 50 pa- papers that he's citing, but really they are not really discipline trained. So uh, I want to ask you about the common mistakes that you see across, across uh, junior faculty and PhD students, things that they are doing uh, that they shouldn't do, uh, and things that they, in your opinion, should be good advice for them to, to follow. What would those be? Yes. So, so the the first uh, uh, thing I'd say is um, a, a failure to check the kind of results of their theory or empirical work with what I might call the real world common sense test. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it, again, that comes back to this view that I have is that it's a pity if we can't get influence from what our work is. And so to do that, you, you really need to say, yeah, well, I've done all this and I've got these results, but, but you know, do they, do they make sense when I think of them in sort of more common sense, real world uh, um, terms? Uh, so I think that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is I find a lot of, especially PhD students and young researchers, they work with data and they, they do certain um, empirical uh, work with their data, things I, I wouldn't know how to do now. They're, they're too sophisticated for me since I learned econometrics and, and this kind of thing a long time ago. But they do all this, but they don't really know their data. They don't really understand and explore their data. So I I think, you know, really getting to understand and exploring your data set (laughs) and looking for patterns in it and and things in it, not just uh, putting it through a sausage machine (laughs) and getting the results out. Because I, I think, you know, if you really get to know your data, from different angles, I I think it might throw up some interesting patterns you didn't think about, and and that might help you innovate in your research. And also, it might help this sort of test of whether 
whether the theory or the estimation you're doing empirically with these data, whether actually it makes sense in, in, a, in common sense terms, you know, so uh, the reasonableness test. So I think there's a lot to be said. Uh, and I you know, often find PhD students who have done all this work on their data, but actually when I ask them about the data, they don't really understand the data. <laughs> they don't really understand what it looks like. You know, they haven't played with it enough. Um, um, so I, I, think, I think there are a couple of things that I think uh, are important that, that young researchers should do. And I suppose the third thing is, you know, not, not getting locked into tram tracks of a particular theory in interpreting the data or your results or what you're thinking about. And I think that comes back to also being willing to ask a different question or to reframe what you're looking at. And, and of course, that's difficult for young people starting out because you don't have the confidence and you think, you know, you better stick to where the field is going and, and so on. But the, you know, the reality is we often find the the, the field goes down dead ends or, or, or runs out of road in particular sort of ways because we've done that. And, and, you know, to make progress, you need to reframe the problem and ask a different question. And so don't be frightened to do that, you know, even as a young researcher, even though, you know, you might worry it makes it more difficult to get published than perhaps something that's an incremental change to a well-established kind of theory. That's right. Thank you. Uh, Peter, for the sake of time, uh, what is a question that I should have asked you but haven't? Um, well, I, I, I think it mainly follows on from, from what I said about the changing nature of globalization. So, so I think the question perhaps would have been good to ask is, how is the context of IB changing? Um, you know, based both the forces of continued globalization, integration, the forces of disruption, um, this question of whether globalization means that local differences are becoming less important or more important uh, for competitive advantage and uh, so forth. So I, I think I, I think the context in which we are doing IB is changing. Uh, one of the points that I often make to people, and I've mentioned in some of my own work, is that, uh, you know, when I started to work on emerging market multinationals, one of the things I realized is that these companies were internationalizing in a world which was already very global, that was very different from the, you know, uh, organizations in the 20th century that were internationalizing in a world which was not global. So, so the context has totally changed. And, and that doesn't mean we have to throw away everything we learned about, you know, the previous things, but it does mean that we need to ask the question, 
how is the context of IB changing and what are the implications of that for the questions we're asking, the results we've had in the past, the, the theories that we have? Thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. This was very informative. I'm sure uh, the audience will agree with me. Thank you for your time, Peter. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your questions. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to join you. Thanks.